Hi, this is Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, Interviews with the Living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. This week, we have Lion Goodman. He's the founder of the Clear Beliefs Institute of Trauma-Informed Therapeutic Coaching. They have graduates in 45 countries. He has had 40 years' experience as a transformational coach, healer, and teacher. His Clear Beliefs methodology is designed to delete limiting beliefs, childhood wounds, and traumas from the core of the psyche. He's also the author of five books, including Clear Your Clients, Limiting Beliefs, Creating on Purpose, and Men Lightenment. So without any further delays, welcome to the show. How are you, Lion? I'm great, Mike. Thanks. I'm alive. You know, any day above ground is a good day. <laughs> well said. And uh, we have two standard questions for the show. One is about your opinions on death. But before we get to that, uh, just what is your age? Where did you grow up? And what generation, if any, do you think you belong to? Well, I'm definitely a boomer. I, I'm 70 years old, which is astounding to me because inside myself, I feel like I'm 35. Um, and I grew up in Denver and Boulder, Colorado. Very cool. Um, yeah, you sound very young. And uh, we always, um, my brother does our bookings, and then we hook up all the accounts and like do all the social media connects. And so I was like astounded because the other day I saw this cute little kid. And when I say little kid, I mean like toddler audience shooting a basket from across the room. And my mind was blown. And I was like, what friend of mine has this kid? And I looked at the name and it was you. And I mean, now maybe we're friends, but at the time I'd never met you. And so I was, I was blown away because you said my grandson. And I was like, what? And so I looked at the picture of you and you're a very healthy, very young looking person and sounding. So congrats on making it that, that way. Thank you. Thank you. This is what it's supposed to look like if you take good care of yourself. And, and really, that is so cool to hear. I'm 41. I'm pretty darn healthy, but I could be healthier. And I'm like realizing that now is the time to make a lot of changes. So actually... Why don't we start there? Uh, what would you say is like a healthy way to go about life? For me, it's about purpose. You know, if you're living your life on purpose, then you are going to be healthy and you're going to be happy and you're going to enjoy your work. And work doesn't even need to be called work if you're enjoying it. It's really more like play, enjoyment, and fulfillment. So that's my number one is find your purpose, work in alignment with your purpose, with your soul intention, and you'll be happy no matter what's happening. Very cool. And were you always that way? I mean, you said you feel 35 inside. Like, when you were literally 35, were you as happy and collected sounding as you are now? Well, I was less mature, for sure. <laughs> I've learned a lot of lessons in those <laughs> in that second half of life. Um, but I was, in, I was in pretty good shape because I was living a, a spiritual life. I was working hard. I was making money, uh, doing all the things I was supposed to do. And... Uh, I, I was a pretty new dad by that time, so that was uh, that was also great. A great part of life is having children and and being a being a father keeps you young. Yeah, definitely. Um, I feel that way. I have two, and uh, we're hoping maybe to have a third. So, whew, uh, <laughs> it sounds both amazing and stressful, but less stressful than amazing now that I've already had at least one under my belt. <laughs> Uh, when you mentioned like spirituality and making money, I used to think that those things were mutually exclusive and in conflict with one another. I no longer believe that, but it still sort of is hard for me to get over the fact that like money is an invention and yet also real and there's nothing like dirty and wrong with it. 
I can tell that you actually get this on like a good deep level. Could you try and explain that back to me in reverse and to our audience as well? Hey, everybody. I just want to thank you so much for listening to the show. Our numbers keep growing and we have a premium package and it would really help us out if some of you loyal fans would head over there and sign up. You get bonus monthly podcasts, you get a book I wrote, and you also get extra essays and other content. So please head over to MikeyOp.com. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com and sign up today. Sure. I'll, I'll tell you a brief story about one of my clients, which will answer that question. Uh, a multimillionaire came to me, and he was a multimillionaire because he made millions, then he lost millions, then he made millions, then he lost millions. He kept That pattern kept happening, and, he, and I'm, I'm called a subconscious pattern detective. So he came to me, and he said, what's going on? And I took him through my process, uh, which has to do with going back to find the source material of any problem. And uh, he remembered uh, walking uh, with his mother at three years old on the streets of New York, and he saw a shiny penny, and he reached down to pick it up. He was very excited, and his mother jerked him back and said, don't touch that, it's dirty. And he suddenly realized that the reason he couldn't hold on to his millions that he was able to make was because money was dirty and he shouldn't touch it. So our beliefs about money uh, and our beliefs about spirituality and religion, etc., these are all externalized structures that we get programmed with as children. And so you know, the old admonitions like, well, you know, money isn't spiritual, and if you're spiritual, you don't make money. Well, those are just old beliefs that get in the way of our living a full and complete life. You speak with such eloquence, and you have such a calm and soothing manner of speaking, and, and even your voice is tranquil. Have you always really been this, like, tranquil, and, and does the wisdom you just, like, you know, like a fountain spewed out to our audience and me, does that really come naturally, or, or did you cultivate this? It's certainly cultivated, uh, but I have been a calm and clear person since I was shot and almost killed at the age of 26, because once you're near death and you see that death is no big deal, uh, the fear goes out, and then what you're left with is yourself. And I've always been a person interested in self-development and growth, so uh, I've taken over 100 workshops and trainings. Um, it's just a continual process of growing and growing both an awakening of who I am and what I do and what the world is and how to relate to other people. So it's a, a constant education, and uh, that makes me happy, and it makes me calm because I know there's always more to learn. That's awesome. And I would love to tease my audience and pretend that I'm just going to gloss over what you said about being 26 and nearly dying. But don't worry, people listening. No, of course, I will be quite rude and force you to relive that experience. Do you mind just slowing down on that moment in time and giving us a couple more details? Sure. Do you want the whole story if, uh, or do you want to wait till we get into it? Uh, I mean, I think the whole story and then I think that'll just perfectly segue into the purpose of the show, which is what do you think happens when you die? So. Okay, uh, I'll set the scenario. Um, I had graduated with a degree in consciousness studies in 1975. That will also tell you how old I am. Um, and as far as I know, it was the first degree granted in that field. I made it up. And so I was already interested in everything about consciousness and psychology, biology, botany, uh, cosmology, religions. Um, I was an explorer uh, from a very early age. But nobody was hiring people with degrees in consciousness studies at the time, so so I couldn't find a job. So I took a job as a traveling salesman just to make money and to get on the road. And I traveled around the southwest United States for about a year and a half trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And because I was a nice guy and a spiritual person, I was a good Samaritan. I'd, I'd stop and help people 
whose cars had broken down on the road. Just kind of, it was my ethics of being on the road. And um, one day, traveling between Las Vegas and L.A., I came across a guy whose car had broken down in the middle of the Mojave Desert. It was about 110 degrees out. And so I stopped and I said, you know, can I help you in any way? And he said, well, I just put $200 into her and she won't start and I don't know what to do. And I said, well, I'm heading into L.A. Do you want to ride? And he looked at me kind of funny and he went, yeah, okay. And uh, he brought his duffel bags and suitcases and boxes into my van. It was an RV van. Um, and we started traveling. And uh, to make the story much shorter than it actually was, uh, we traveled together for three days. And I grew to trust him. And I sent him on errands, you know, get the van gassed up or washed or move boxes around. Um, and the third night we were camped out at a near a reservoir east of L.A. And I was in the back of the van in this crouched position moving stuff into cabinets uh, because the van was really crowded. He was in the front of the van listening to music, and suddenly there was an explosion, and something hit me in the head. And I, at first I thought it was the gas stove that exploded, and I looked up, and the gas stove was intact. Then I looked to my left, and there he was with a black gun pointed at my head from the front seat. And I was a sitting duck. You know, I, I, there was nothing I could do. I couldn't move or defend myself. And so at first I thought he was warning me. And so I just relaxed and I said, it's all yours. Because at that moment, the only thing that was of value was my life. And everything else, the van and all its contents were just stuff. And uh, so I was ready to give it all up. You know, leave me naked outside. That's fine. But then he shot again. And I realized that he wasn't just warning me he was going to kill me. And at that point, you know, here I am, 26 years old, trying to figure out what my future was going to be. And I realized, hmm, maybe I couldn't figure out my future because I don't have one. I'm about to be dead. And I thought, well, if I'm going to die, I, I don't. I want to die clean. I had studied death and dying among all the other philosophies I had studied. And so I did a quick re reverse movie reel of my life. And went through and I forgave everyone that had hurt me and asked forgiveness from everyone that I had hurt because I wanted to leave clean with nothing left behind, no regrets, no no entanglements. Uh, and that I, I did that and he shot a third time. The second and third bullets missed me by fractions of an inch. And uh, at this point, I was saying, OK, I'm God, source, I'm ready to go home. And uh, I felt myself lifting out of my body and being in this beautiful golden love light that filled me and flowed through me. And I was like a point consciousness seeing 360 degrees around me and looking down at this van where these two little people were doing these little antics in the van. And I was just kind of amused and amazed going, oh, that's pretty cool. Look at, look at those people doing that little dance drama down there. Um, and then uh, and I was ready to float right up into the light. And he shot again. And this time, the, the, my head was violently thrown to the side. Blood was pouring down uh, off of my head. And uh, I was back in my body, which surprised me because I was, I, I was supposed to be out of my body. Uh, but I was back in my body. And because I had studied anatomy and physiology, I knew, I knew that the bullet, depending on where the bullet went, it was going to knock some of my capabilities out. Um, so I was looking around my body and my mind and my emotions, and everything seemed intact. I didn't quite understand that, but but uh, I, I said, well, if I'm going to die, I want to look my assassin in the eyes, because I was perpendicular to him. So I picked up my head, turned and looked at him, and he freaked out. And he jumped up from where he was 
behind the, the front seat, and he said, why aren't you dead, man? You're supposed to be dead. And I didn't know the answer to that question, so I just said, here I am, because I was still filled with this golden love light and uh, just you know this peaceful, calm place. Uh, and he said, it's too weird, man. It's too weird. It's just like my dream this morning. And I, I said, what dream? And he said, I dreamed I was shooting at this guy, and he wouldn't die, but it wasn't you. It was somebody else in the dream. And I thought, okay, this is weird. <laughs> well, who, who wrote the script? How did I get into this movie? And why didn't I sign a contract? You know, so that was, so, um, I, I figured, well, okay, he's talking, he's kind of freaked out. If I could keep him talking, maybe he wouldn't shoot me again. And so I began to very slowly talk to him and he kept saying, shut up, shut up. Why are you dead? I shot you four times, man. I shot you four times. Why are you dead? And so I just, I said, well, maybe I'm not supposed to die. And he said, yeah, but I shot you, man. I shot you. And he was bouncing all around the band because he was all adrenalated. And of course, we were in the middle of nowhere. Nobody would have heard the shots or if they had, they wouldn't have come by. So again, making a very long story short, uh, we ended up talking for eight hours after that happened. At one point, he said, he he showed concern. He came up to me. He said, does it hurt? Look at my head. And of course, I was all covered with blood. And I said, yeah, it hurts, but I think I'm okay. And he said, okay, I'm going to take you to a hospital that I know. And I said, okay. I thought that was a good idea at the time. Uh, so, so he started driving the van and he drove for some period of time. I was in this blissful golden love light state. Uh, he was included in it because everything was included. And, um, he drove for some period of time. I was thinking about what had just happened and how weird it was. Uh, and then he finally pulled the van over and stopped and turned off the engine. And I knew we weren't near a hospital uh, because there were, there were no lights. And it was quiet for a minute. And then he walked back to where I was still crouched in this very uncomfortable position with a gun in his hand. And he said, I, I can't take it to the hospital, man. I have to kill you. And I said, oh, why is that? <laughs> Always good to be curious, you know, when someone's, <laughs> someone's talking, you know. So uh, he said, because if I take you to the hospital, they'll put me back in jail. I can't go back to jail, man. And I went, oh, not only is this a person with a gun, it's an ex-con with a gun. It's like it suddenly <laughs> elevated, you know, the seriousness. And so we, we talked for a while, and eventually I said, you know, I'd, I'd really like to get out of this cramped position it's really uncomfortable. And he was showing care. You know, he, he wasn't, you know, he, he didn't look happy with the prospect of shooting me. He, he, and so, uh, so he let me out of the van and he pointed down to a pond and, um, and we walked down the pond. He was behind me with a gun. I thought, well, he could shoot me in the back and push me into the water. But I also felt invincible at that point. So I bent down, I, I washed the blood off my face and my hands and, and I stood up and turned toward him. And he, he kind of held the gun out to me. And he said, what would you do if I handed you this gun? And I said, I'd throw it into the water. <laughs> and he, he looked at me strangely. He said, you mean you, you wouldn't shoot me? You wouldn't try to kill me? I said, no, why would I do that? You've got your life. I've got mine. We're okay. And then he gave me a really quizzical look. And he said, man, you are the weirdest person I've ever met. <laughs> and I thought, yep, I'm probably the weirdest person you'll ever meet. So... <laughs> We went back to the van, talked for more hours. The sun rose. I, it was, I heard birds singing, which was the most beautiful uh, sound I'd ever heard. And I realized that I basically had been re reincarnated, but without having to go through the nasty diaper stage. So, uh, so I had a new life. Uh, we came to an agreement that I wouldn't turn him in and he wouldn't ever do anything like that again. And uh, we parted company, shook hands. He was looking at me quite strangely and I drove myself to the hospital where I found out the two bullets had creased my skull. I, I mean, 
first of all, it's funny because you said, uh, you know, what I don't remember signing up for this movie. Like when I would love that movie, I would watch it, but you could never sell that script. Well, it actually became a movie. Yeah. So, so it was used as a script for a film, one best film at a film festival. That's so cool. I was I was actually going to even elaborate further. Was it independent or did it go through the system? Yeah, it was an independent short film, a 20 minute film that was done by a, a graduate student. Columbia Film School. I mean, I love it. I was I was going to ask you if I could write it. So that's so cool. God, I have so many questions. I, I do want to remind myself and make sure I'm correct. You were 26 at the time? Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's the perfect age for every part of your decision making, both letting the guy in the car, trusting him for three days, the bravery, everything. That's so cool. How reluctant were you to tell that story in its full version to people? And how much did you like edit out the spiritual parts as you were like young versus now? Like, like how much has that story evolved? After I got a job as a headhunter, which is kind of <laughs> ironic since I had just had my head hunted, uh, but that was the first job I got. Um, I, I wanted to write the story down because it was quite incredible, and I knew that somebody would want to read it at some point. Uh, so I, I, I wrote this 26-page version of the story with all the details, and I sent it into a couple magazines, and I went, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I just put it aside. Um, and then uh, one day, many years later, I was listening to the radio, and I was listening to NPR, and they had this thing called the uh, National Story Project, and they, they were reading very short stories about people's experiences. Uh, and they said, if you want to submit your story, please do. Uh, it has to be no more than two pages and uh, send it here. So I thought, well, if I could condense that 26 pages into two pages, that would be something. So I took it on to, to do. I crammed it down into a very tiny print all the way out to the edges of the paper. <laughs> but I, I managed to send it in. And uh, I got a call back from, from the, uh, the publisher. And uh, she said, you know, Paul, Paul Oster was the editor, a uh, pretty, pretty famous guy. And uh, she said, Paul's interested in your story, but he wants to know what happened next. <laughs> because I had to cut it off at some point. I said, well, <laughs> I'd be happy to tell you what happened next, but it would take more than two pages. She said, that's okay. Um, and I told her about the 26-page version. She said, well, send that too. So I sent all that in, and uh, Paul took all of that and condensed it into a, a six-page story, which ended up in the book called I Thought My Father Was God and Other True Tales from NPR's National Story Project, which was an international bestseller. Um, and it was the longest story in the book. Um, so um, that's that's how it got famous. And then, then a film student said, I would like to make a film, and it became a film, and won best film at a film festival. So that's the story. Yeah, I do want to make sure I ask appropriately right now, what do you think happens when you die based on however you want to answer that, meaning, like, has it changed since that story? Is that story the reason for it? Well, first of all, uh, because I, my currency is beliefs, I help people clear their beliefs, and I understand beliefs at the very core. Um, whatever we believe is what we experience. And so depending on what you believe about death, my philosophy is is that that belief will impact your experience uh, after the afterlife. Um, first of all, I believe that we are souls and that we incarnate, and we incarnate many times, and we've lived and died many times. Uh, death is always a successful experience, uh, in my opinion, because <laughs> nobody's ever been unsuccessful at dying. Um, and so uh, my own my own philosophy, I call it a philosophy because it's variable. It depends on what I believe each day and the moment. 
uh, is that we do have lots to do remaining after we're, we've lived this life, that this is like a school, that we come here to learn lessons, and that we go on to a higher dimension to either get caught in the astral plane, which is a kind of fantasy world where people's he- ideas of heavens, heaven or hell take place, uh, but if we're smart enough, we get out of the astral plane and rise up to a higher plane where we can actually uh, get a better job and, uh, and do more for other people. That's incredible. And uh, we had a guest on a long time ago named Christian Sundberg, and I reference him a lot on the show because he has a profound story as well, which is that he remembers his prenatal existence. And uh, pretty much everything he talked about tends to gel with what you just said. But something I remember him saying, and I, I read his book that was very profound, and I, I would like your take on it, is he said something to the effect of what people cheer for here in the earth realm is not at all what people cheer for in the other realms. And if you really want to live your life in the best way possible, make it all about like other people and just serving and stuff. Do you, do you agree with that? Is there anything you'd like to change about that? How does that affect you? Yeah, I, I do agree with it. Um, I believe that we have amnesia when we come into a body and we most of us, almost everybody, forgets what it was before they were born. Um, I have memories that go back into past lives, and um, I don't know if they're real or not. They could be me remembering somebody else's experience, or they could be there might be a me that comes back over and over again. I'm kind of neutral on which way that goes, or they could be made up. I don't know. But what's interesting is that when we're doing our work with people to clear their beliefs and their traumas, often past life experiences come up. And so we work with those because that's what's bugging the person. That's the source of whatever they're experiencing. So we can work with it as a practical level, as a practical experience, regardless of what's true in quotation marks. I think the universe is a lot more complicated than we can conceive of. So when we talk about life and death, uh, we're trying to take a highly complex infinitely complex system and bring it down into a couple of conceptual ideas. And, uh, you know, you look around at nature and nature's being reborn all the time. Trees lose their leaves and come up again in spring. Uh, People have been following natural cycles forever. And, you know, now that we're civilized, so-called, you know, we want to know what's true. Well, you can look to nature and just see life's complicated. And it's infinitely complex, and it's you know we try to put it into words, but words are just simplified beliefs about about a portion of reality. So um, when I was 12 years old, my dad handed me a book and said, "I think this might interest you," and I started reading it. It was about Edgar Casey's life readings. Yeah, I read about 25 pages, and I closed it. I went, "Oh yeah, I remember that." So uh, so I don't know whether that was a stimulus of a memory or something, but. I've known about this for a long time. And so, yeah, so to come back to like one of the first things you talked about, with, which is purpose, the other part of my question was, and I'm really always trying to discover this from other people, you're very successful in my opinion, and my definition of success is happiness, um, genuine happiness, real, like calm, tranquil happiness. And so you are 70 years old, you're incredibly tranquil, you, you sound appropriately content and it's in a way that I'm not envious of or jealous of but I absolutely want to achieve I have it now in moments but I do not have it like in any sense of permanence and so I'm curious is the purpose of my life 
to achieve that state and to achieve it, I would go through whatever it is? Or is the purpose of my life something deeper or different? Well, uh, I can't tell you what the purpose of your life is. I know the purpose of my life. Um, I, you know, at the bottom line, the purpose of your life is to make purpose out of your life. <laughs> uh, you know, however you do that. Uh, but I do believe we have a soul intention when we come into this existence. And because we experience that amnesia, we don't remember it. Some of us find it again and follow it. Some people know it from a very early age, like, I'm going to be a doctor, I'm going to heal. Uh, other people are going, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do when I grow <laughs> up. But they stumble upon it, you know, like maybe somebody shoots you in the head four times and, and you figure it out, <laughs> um, whatever it takes. But most people get caught in the egoic striving for success and belonging and all those other things. And that's not purpose doesn't have to do with that. You know, nobody's purpose is to make a lot of money and be famous. We're all here to serve other people and to make a better world. And there's lots of ways to do that. But you can find your purpose. I help people find their purpose. Um, it's a particular process called the true purpose method. And um, it, it can be found. You do. You can remember and find, discover your purpose. And then when you live in alignment with that, then you get happiness out of it. When you live against it, you get unhappiness. I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. And that definitely aligns with all the deeper feelings I've ever had in my life. So that was a, a great answer and a great articulation. Real quick, just because uh, I would hate if I forgot to ask it. Did you ever run into that man again? Did you ever like experience? Did he read your stuff, get in touch with you? Or is it just like, that's it, that one time? Well, I've told this story so many times. It's been published so widely that that I figured there's about a one in a million chance that he'll come across it and, and say, oh, that was that guy. Uh, but I, I can say that I I followed him psychically for about five years after the incident, just sort of checking in on him from time to time. And uh, in my guesswork of uh, psychic phenomenon, <laughs> um, it looked like he actually you know, got real, got a job, left criminality, uh, got married, had had two kids. Uh, that's what it felt like. I have no idea whether that was true or not, but uh, that's what it felt like. And um, so, and never had contact. It's interesting. You're unlike anyone else I've ever met who would talk about having a psychic experience and yet also at the same time just earnestly say, you know, I mean, I don't know if it's true or not, but that's what I felt like. Where does the confidence to be unconfident come from? <laughs> <laughs> By understanding beliefs, how beliefs work, uh, beliefs are the infrastructure of the human mind in the same way that neurons are the infrastructure of the human brain. So when you understand how beliefs work, where they come from, how they form, how they function in our lives, you recognize, you know, it's all done with beliefs. It's like it's all done with smoke and mirrors, you know, in a magic show. <laughs> so, uh, so when you see how the mind functions, it creates beliefs in order to survive and then uses those beliefs for the rest of your life. You go, okay, well, it's all made with belief. So if I believe something, I'm committed to that way of seeing the world. But if I'm not committed to seeing it that way, I could see it in a thousand other ways. So it gives you a much broader view of of what's possible in the universe when you don't hook on to a belief and say, this is true. Because in an, inf in an infinite universe, nothing can be universally true. Wow. Very profound, very well said. And that really gelled with me. So then how would you explain to someone listening the difference between a thought and a belief? And I'll be even more specific. Like if I have a thought, you're going to fail at this thing you're about to do. 
is that different from the belief of like I'm going to fail at this thing I'm about to do? <laughs> uh, no, it's not different. Mo- many of our thoughts are actually beliefs. Even when we look at an animal and say that's a dog, that's a belief that based on our language and reality that says we call that kind of creature a dog. Now, the problem is, as soon as we label something uh, an infinitely complex object with a belief, we don't have to pay attention to it anymore. So when you really get to know a dog or a cat, you find out that they're amazing beings and that they live a completely different kind of life and perceptual reality than we do. And you get to know its personality and what it wants and what it needs. Um, But as soon as you say dog, you don't have to pay attention to it anymore. So you miss out on the awe-inspiring complexity of the creature. So we do this with language. We have our language uh, basically solidifies a tiny little slice of reality, and then we think it's real when it's really just an arbitrary little slice of reality. So thoughts are, beliefs create our thoughts, beliefs create our feelings, beliefs create our choices, beliefs create our decisions and our motivations. So underneath all of those things are the beliefs, the structures that we put together throughout our lives to function, to survive and thrive. That's so fascinating. And now I'm starting to see a lot of the conflict that I experience with friendships relationships any of these things is that like when my partner or friend's belief doesn't align with mine I'm at a loss for how to solve the gap between us so like if my wife believes that we should always lock the front door because if we don't someone's going to come in and kill us and I believe that by not locking the front door this is fake by the way um uh we invite like kindness into the universe and of course no one's going to like come in and break in how do you deal with that when you when you come across like two different people with beliefs that are conflicting with each other, but they love each other. This is relationship. (laughs) 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 Uh, All relationships uh, have some incompatibilities. And because we're infinite beings, uh, multidimensional thoughts and feelings, uh, we're going to be incompatible with the other person's reality at times. And so by recognizing we are each entitled to create our own reality and no single reality is right or wrong, good or bad, true or false, um, it's just another point of view, then the invitation is for you to go into her point of view and see the world through her eyes and her experience and go, oh, okay, now I get it. Now I see why you feel that way. So you could try on another person's belief I'll give you an example. I, I once tried on the belief, uh, Jesus is Lord, and if you believe, you go to heaven, and if not, you go to hell. I was raised Jewish, so that was a very foreign belief to me, okay? But I wanted to understand it, so I t- took it on, tried it on, believed it as if it was 100% true, and suddenly I looked out and I could see all the people suffering that were going to go to hell, and all I wanted to do was proselytize them and get them in alignment with, with heaven, Jesus, and, it, and that helped me understand pro, the whole principle of under, behind proselytization is that, you know, you actually believe that people are, are suffering, so you need to go save them. So we can try on other people's beliefs, see out of their eyes. Uh, you know, you've heard the old saw about you know, don't criticize someone unless you walk for a mile in their moccasins, right? Um, the good part about that is that when you do criticize them, you're a mile away and you 
have their moccasins. But um, other than <laughs> but but you you could also say don't don't criticize someone until you try on their belief and see through their eyes, and because that our beliefs create our perceptions. And then it's a matter of understanding rather than arguing who's right. That's, gosh, like all your wisdom and all of your answers, that was so profound. And I love always to give my guests just the last thing to say. So whatever you feel like saying to our audience, what would you like to tell us? If you don't like a part of your life, uh, examine what you believe about it. And then if you don't like what reality your beliefs are producing, change your beliefs. That's not that easy to change your beliefs. You have to clear out, you have to clear them out multidimensionally. And that's where the clear beliefs method comes in. Uh, it's not easy to just change your mind. However, if there's, if you don't like your finances, look at your money beliefs. If you don't like your relationship, uh, look at your marriage and relationship beliefs. If you don't like your health condition, look at your health beliefs. And then work on those beliefs, changing those, and everything else will change. Wow, that was so succinct. Um, I have chills all over. I, Lion, you're an incredible, incredible man, incredible person, incredible multidimensional being. Wow, I feel appropriately changed after talking to you, and I'm going to really think a lot about what you said in the coming days and weeks of my life. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I think what you're doing and how you're helping people is truly unique and something that the world really needs. And uh, for everyone listening at home, as always, we love you. We appreciate your support. Best thing you can do is head over to mikeyop.com that's m-i-k-e-y-o-p-p.com and subscribe for free or go the extra mile and sign up for the premium package and we thank you for listening to the show and we will see you soon and i feel that you're and i sing you are my moon